the way I sort of felt safe in the world was I tried to beat everybody, whether it was in sports or school or getting promotions. And it became quite dysfunctional for me because I never asked for help. I felt like I had to suffer through everything, couldn't ask for guidance. I didn't create mentors and, and foster those sort of relationships. So I looked back after you know, a number of years and just felt so alone and unsupported. Hey, it's David, and you're listening to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul, your source for practical leadership inspiration, tools, and strategies you can use to achieve transformational results without sacrificing your humanity or your mind in the process. Hey, welcome to the show today. We have uh, a pair of guests for you. I always enjoy these shows where we can talk to two folks in the same time and get the different perspectives that that brings. I was so intrigued when I first came across the title of their book, which is out now, uh, just coming out. And uh, it's so synergistic and complimentary. As a listener of the show, you're very familiar with Courageous Cultures. And our guests today take a different approach but I think you're gonna love it. So we are talking to Gaurav Bhatnagar and Mark Manukas. Gaurav is the founder of Co-Creation Partners and helps companies thrive and achieve breakthrough performance. He was a leader in McKinsey's organizational practice in North America, worked for PepsiCola International and Procter & Gamble in Europe, the Middle East, and India. Mark's the managing partner of Co-Creation Partners and is an engineer by training. He began his career as a Navy officer, also served with McKinsey in the operations practice, and works across multiple industries to build high-performing operations. Gaurav and Mark, welcome to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. Thank you, David. Thanks for having us. I, well, think, I think it takes a lot of courage to have a podcast with the word soul in it. So kudos to you, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. It's, uh, uh, it's actually the subtitle of our first book was Winning Well, A Manager's Guide to Getting Results Without Losing Your Soul. So, uh, and unfear is right down that alley. So listeners, that's what we're talking about today. In addition to all of those accolades and things that they do, Gaurav and Mark are also the authors of Unfear, Transform Your Organization to Create Breakthrough Performance and Employee Well-Being. So you can see we're definitely aligned today. And I can't wait to dive into Unfear, but before we do that, First question I want to ask both of you, please, is if you could share with us your earliest memory of yourself as a leader. And I will let you choose who goes first when you're ready. <laughs> I'd say Gaurav pointing to me. Um, All right, Mark, you're up. Yeah, the earliest memory as a leader. Gosh, that's got to go back to my, my childhood. And... Um, yeah, I, you know, I've got a, a brother, he's uh, a younger brother who's uh, a year and a half younger than me, uh, but we were pretty close growing up. And I, I just can remember so many days where we would just be out playing with our friends and, you know, even just doing pick up football games in our yard. And, you know, someone would be inevitably be the quarterback. Uh, you know, we'd rotate through and I remember, you know, having to huddle people up and call plays and and all that, you know, that probably went back to, you know, just being seven, eight years old, just playing out in the, uh, the front yard and just, you know, having this experience of having to rally people together and, and give them direction. So that's probably my earliest uh, experience that I would identify as, as being a leader. Oh, I love that, Mark. And is it any coincidence that you had this operational expertise later in life? Yeah, it all sort of came together. Yeah. I mean, I, I think leadership has been a, a a theme in my life. I've, I've kind of always strived to, 
make a difference and, and step into roles where I can make a difference. And, you know, I experienced that in the Navy, but also as a, as a consultant trying to create organizational change. Fantastic. All right, Gaurav, your turn. Wow, Mark, I'm impressed. Uh, my first memory of being a, a leader, and I was a terrible one at that, was when I directed a school play in high school. And I still remember, you know, that there was this guy who was being completely arrogant and was not listening to me. And I threw a shoe at him because I was so <laughs> upset with him. So, so not a great start to leadership. <laughs> I love that so much. I love it. You threw a shoe at the arrogant, uncooperative guy. That's fantastic. Well, hey, I mean, well, we had the Soviet premier banging his shoe on the desk back in the day. So, oh my goodness. Well, Grav, you're 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 not in bad company. I, I always share my first, my earliest leadership memory. One of them is of I was the oldest of six kids, and I I locked them all in the basement in order to make them clean the house. So, you know, uh, I was only a hair away from throwing a shoe. So, I you have my sympathy. <laughs> All right, well, that is fun. So we're throwing shoes, we're, we're running plays, and somehow that's all gonna take us to Unfear. So the name of your book, Unfear, again, we're talking about transforming your organization to create breakthrough performance and employee well-being. And so, like I said, when I first came across Unfear, the title intrigued me, it's like, okay, Unfear, I like that. It's not whatever the opposite of fear is, it's Unfear. And so let's just start by talking about fear, because you, you go in depth here in the book, but the problem of fear. What's the problem of fear in our organizations and leadership as it exists today? Yes. Mark, should I jump in? Do you want to go? Go for it. Go for it. So I think, David, one of the big assertions we make in the book is that fear is the single biggest source of waste in organizations. Mm. And the reason why we make that assertion is because we believe that when you, op when you operate from a reactive place in relationship to fear, you actually lose your soul. And what happens is at an individual level, you either over-modulate or under-modulate yourself, which leads to you being ineffective. Within teams, there's a breakdown in trust and an inability to engage in powerful, difficult conversations. And at an organization level, it leads to strategies which are reactive, which are actually not very well thought through, and it leads to significant long-term waste. In the short run, it feels good because you might get the results you want. That's why everyone talks about, you know, a burning platform and lighting a fire under people's butt. But in the long run, it actually creates a lot of dysfunction and a lot of chaos. Yeah, the only thing I would add there is, you know, the problem with fear is that people don't talk about it. You know, it's, it's sort of a taboo uh, subject in organizations. And, you know, just we were talking about the, you know, early leadership experiences, you know, for myself as, as a man in the world, I was sort of taught that you can't, it's not okay to be fearful. You know, don't be a scaredy cat. So for me, it was like fear was something I couldn't acknowledge as a leader. And that was reinforced many times in, in my life. And I, I think a lot of leaders have that experience where fear is just not okay uh, to acknowledge or you acknowledge it and it's just, it's a bad thing and you try to suppress it or, or create fearless organizations. So 
uh, what we're trying to do through our book is just make it okay for people to acknowledge that, yeah, fear, fear exists. It's, it's part of the human condition. And if we can see it and face it, you know, we create new opportunities for learning and growth. And that's the name of the game. It's a, it's a real thing. And it, I mean, it's there, that emotion is there in us for a reason. We'll get into that in a little bit. I know, uh, you know, as I was reading your book, I was taken back to when I first started writing and blogging and then wrote my very first book. One, I was wrestling with this just myself, you know, as a leader for the years I had been in, in various leadership roles, thinking about the problem of fear. And so I love, you know, it's the biggest source of waste. It's the taboo to talk about it. And then if we use it as a leadership tactic, there's the reality, the, the way I like to say it is, fear is asking somebody to give the least minimum effort. And it's basically, give me whatever it's gonna take to remove the fear and nothing else. There's no discretionary effort past that, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like that least minimum effort kind of a thing, which I, you know, I've never seen, a, never have I met a leader. He's like, if I could just get the least amount of work out of my people, we'd be on fire. Uh -huh. Yeah, we, yeah. We, we have this idea where we say to, uh, in our book, we say, do you want an organization with a thousand children or do you want an organization with a thousand leaders? Mm. Because fear often creates children. Uh, depending on the parent, the, the relationship is an interesting one, but it creates exactly to your point, the, the least effort required to overcome that fear and nothing much more than that. And the tricky part is fear actually works. It works in the short term, right? It does get people to put in that, that minimum discretionary effort. And so it kind of can create this perverse feedback loop where leaders constantly have to ratchet up the fear in order to get that next incremental little bit of effort out of people. But it just, it destroys, you know, well-being of, of people. And, you know, stress is not <laughs> good when it's, it's held on to long-term. And it just, it becomes dysfunctional in organizations. It creates all that, that waste that we talked about. It's dysfunctional for the team and all of the negative impact on the organization. And it also is hurtful for the leader who's using it. You know, I've seen so many leaders who have massive health problems and stress problems and everything because that's what they know. Because, like you said, Mark, because they get addicted. Well, this works at least a little bit. So that's my well, I'm gonna go back to it. Yeah, and then you lose your soul. Yeah, in the process. In fact, David, the way I got into this work was actually because I was one of those leaders. Mm. So starting off by throwing out my shoe at people, I was your classic um, insecure overachiever uh, as a consultant in McKinsey, going zipping up the ranks as a leader. And um, I was really, really, you know, I couldn't even admit to myself, but I was exhausted. I was, I was basically burning out. I had a very, very tenuous marriage at that point. My children hardly ever saw me. And it, it was really, and, and I just couldn't, I didn't know any other way of being. So I thought that was the only way to be successful. And a lot of this book comes from a place of me understanding and learning how you can be successful and happy and how happiness actually allows you to be successful and success when thought of in a more holistic way allows you to connect with your joy. Mm, that's beautiful. Thank, thank you for that transparency. You know, Grav, I'm, I'm curious if you wouldn't mind taking us to your moment of awakening or what happened for you with your relationship with fear. What was it that, was there a moment in time? Was it an unfolding? What changed for you? Yeah, so, 
So this was back in uh, 2002. And I had just moved with McKinsey to South Africa and the office was not doing too well. And um, you know they had tried all kinds of things, nothing was working. And they brought this woman in from Australia, uh, an English woman um, with, with an Indian name called Geeta Bellan. And I was telling all my cynical friends, oh, she's a fraud. Her real name is Margaret. She's just taking an Indian name because she wants us to believe she knows something. And, and I was basically completely closed down to it. And interesting enough, in that workshop that I was with her, a couple of things happened. The first one was she took me through an exercise where she really challenged some of my fundamental models of, of how I saw the world. And it was to do with this whole idea of success versus happiness. But the other thing that happened was she actually uh, asked us to do meditation, which I thought was crazy. An Indian guy like me doing meditation in the West, what's wrong with these people? And, and as I went into the meditation, I felt myself energetically vibrating. And even after the meditation, it didn't stop. And I thought she'd done some magic, crazy stuff, voodoo stuff. I walked up to her and she, she brought the energy down and she explained to me what had happened. And it helped me understand that there were things in my paradigm, which I had rejected because to me, it's the success paradigm and the classic, you know, you strive and that's all that matters was so, so stuck. She basically helped me see things that I'd never understood. Mm. And it led to me on a journey of exploration which I thought was going to be a few months because I was going to, being the son of a physicist, I was going to crack the cord and that was it. And then I would forget about it. Led to a 20 year, a 20 year long journey where I am constantly discovering things about myself and my own potential and how fear holds me back. And, and so this book is as much an expression of myself as it is uh, a book to help other people. And it is as much a philosophy of life as it is a guide to leaders to do things differently because of that experience. And it is definitely both of those. Absolutely. Mark, how about you? What would you say your relationship with fear has been and in coming into this work? And then we're going to dive in and get some of the, pull out some of these elements from the book. Yeah, I mean, since I've I've gotten you know deep into this uh, you know culture work, I've discovered quite a bit about myself. You know, one thing I've discovered is that I I'm a hyper competitor, or I have been in the past, and I wouldn't you know in the past I would not have identified that immediately as a fear based you know orientation to life. But I've since better understood that, and you know realized and saw very clearly that I had this really deep-seated fear of not belonging, you know, being rejected. And the way I sort of felt safe in the world was I tried to beat everybody, whether it was in sports or school or getting promotions. And it became quite dysfunctional for me because I never asked for help. You know, I didn't, you know, at McKinsey & Company, for instance, I felt like I had to suffer through everything on my own. I couldn't ask for help couldn't ask for guidance. I didn't create, you know, uh, you know, mentors and, and foster those sort of relationships. So I look back after, you know, a number of years and just felt so alone and, and just, um, you know, unsupported. 
And, you know, that was, you know, deeply unsatisfying for me. And so that, that sort of kickstarted, you know, a much deeper process of self-reflection that um, has been tremendously helpful for my own leadership and, you know, my ability to, to work with other people and just my own life satisfaction and the relationships in my life, you know, so, um, you know, just understanding that, wow, I did have a fear-based, you know, sort of pattern and just unpacking that and just making it, you know, the, the fear itself is okay, but how I was relating to it and interpreting these threats in the world uh, was not allowing me to be effective. And unlike Gorb, I think Gorb had this, you know, moment in time that was, was transformational for him. For me, it's been, you know, just a smaller series of, you know, uh, discoveries uh, throughout my life. And we get there in different ways. There isn't one yeah. process, right? Mm -hmm. I love the, the vulnerability and tra transparency. You both clearly walk the message here. You're living it out. And, you know, from a leadership perspective, when we can approach things as authentically as you are here with our teams, it creates that atmosphere, that culture, that opportunity for everybody to grow together and do all the things you were talking about earlier. So let's get into, uh, if those, we talked about the problems with fear, thank you for sharing with us your own, we call that navigating the narrative about your journey and your relationship with fear and then with courage and so on. What is unfear? You say it's the antidote, but what exactly are we talking about with unfear? Yeah, the, the core idea of unfear is acknowledging that fear is neither a good thing or a bad thing. It's just part of the human experience. And it's really about shifting the stories and the narratives that we have about our fears. So if we can reframe our relationship to fear and see fear as a cue for learning and growth, that's the, that's the path. That's the antidote is not, you know, facing your fear, but just, you know, seeing what it has to, to teach you. Yeah. Let's, let's walk through that a little bit. And, and, you know, people listening today, they're in leadership roles and those carry with them all kinds of fears. Like you've already mentioned the fear of, am I going to meet my, my metrics or my goals, or is my team going to listen to what I'm trying to help, help them to get, uh, you know, is my boss going, is my livelihood, there's so many fears that can go with it as we start to experience these things and they lead to all that cascade that we talked about earlier. Let's get practical for just a moment. And I know you've got some methods and some things to think about, walk us through that process. Cause it starts with us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so, so one of the core things we talk about is that this unfair process is an inside out process. So it needs to start with looking at yourself. And the first postulate that is given is that, you know, one of the things that I often ask in my workshops is I ask people, hey, do you have any thoughts or ideas inside your head? And most people say, of course we do. And I, so then I ask them, so who's doing the thinking and who's observing the thinking, right? And so the first step is to help leaders understand that not only are you an outcome of your thoughts, you are the observer of your thoughts. And if you're the observer, observer of your thoughts, then you have control over them, or choice over them, more, less control, more choice over them, right? So the first step is to get into a recognition of, of that you have choice and you're not just the actor in your life, but the director of your life. But the first step is when the emotion happens, how do you, actually create the space for observation rather than just collapsing into the emotion, right? And I'm sure you've talked about it, many reader, many of your speakers, I'm sure in your book, you've, you've probably talked about it. And that point of choice is by actually reconnecting with your body 
and understanding what sensations do you experience in the early parts of a negative emotional reaction or a fear-based reaction? Because the body understands faster than the mind can, right? And when you learn to notice that, then you can press what is called the metaphorical pause button. Yeah, and you know, by the way, it's it's not magic because you can press the pause button and you can still do the same stupid thing that you were about to do, right? <laughs> Uh, so it's not like the pause button is the solution, but the pause button at least gives you the space to observe. And from that place, then you then you reflect and ask yourself some questions, right? There are three questions we often talk about, which are pretty transformational. Uh, the easiest one is what different choice can I make? And the most challenging one is why have I created this? Why have I created this in my life? You know, so it isn't, Think of rather than blame other people, you ask yourself the reflective question of what is it? Why am I inviting this into my own life? And from that place, now you have to translate that into behavior. You, you, you hit the pause, you understand there's an alternative. Now, what do you do with that? And in organizations, that means you change the way you communicate because most of the acts a leader does are communication acts, right? If your daughter or your child, son comes to work with you, all they'll see you do all day is talk. Talk on the phone, talk on the computer, talk on email, talk, talk, talk. So how do you shift your communication? And there are multiple thoughts on that. One of the biggest ones is how do you switch from being self-righteous in your communication to be effective in your communication? And there's a multiple layers to that. And then finally, from that perspective, how do you engage the power of the organization to create different outcomes? So it's, it's a big answer uh, you do, to a big question. I hope that that gives you some sense. Absolutely. Yes, it does. And I'm, I'm as you were talking, Gaurav, I'm, I'm thinking through some experiences that I've had where fear cascades. So the board puts pressure on the CEO, puts pressure on the next tier, and that just flows. And there is a tendency that it heightens as it flows. It actually gets worse <laughs> because, gosh, if they said, if they're acting with fear, this must super be important. So then I'm going to use even more with yep. my people. And to break that chain, somebody has to break that chain because it might have been unintentional. And it's a, you know, it's a, that fear response. Let's say the CEO is getting pressure from the board may not even realize they're in fear. They've got to deal with their own stuff. If you're a CEO listening, well, now you, even more importantly, because it's going to resonate throughout the whole organization. But if I'm a, a middle level or a senior leader and I get that fear approach transmitted to me, natural body reaction, you're saying, yes, I'm going to experience the anxiety, the tension, the pressure, the fear. But if I'm going to break that chain, I've got to acknowledge it. I've got to push pause. I've got to reflect on what I'm feeling and then make some different choices. Absolutely. I love that. Yeah. And one thing we work on with our clients is, you know, Gorv talked about the inside out transformation and organizations don't transform, individuals do. And it's not enough for just the senior leaders to change what they do. I think that's critical. It's super important, but it's often not enough. You actually need the, the other leaders and the informal leaders and influencers in the system to, you know, role model themselves and hit that pause button and and sort of break that cycle of fear because if people further down in the organization don't do that then it's really difficult to create that critical mass and have the whole system shift from fear to unfear 
And in an unfair, you you do a good job of walking us through that process uh, and take the reader through how individuals do it across the board. You get into systems and 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 so on. What happened? And I want to encourage everyone listening to to read the book and do that work. Let's start with the outcomes. What happens organizationally when we do that? What are some of the traits of an unfair organization? What's happening as a result? Mark, you want to take that? Yeah, you know, we we talk through different archetypes. You know, the, there's a fear archetypes and then the unfair archetypes, which are just patterns of behavior that you observe. You know, if there's a lot of fear in the culture or, you know, a lot of wisdom and self-confidence. So, you know, the unfair archetypes are the achievers. These are organizations that can stretch and set really high goals, uh, but they're not unforgiving. You know, if you miss a goal, it's 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 cause for celebration and it's it's a chance for for learning and and reflection rather than blame. So, you know, those are the achieving cultures. We have the seekers, and those are organizations that are constantly improving and looking for um, in all the ways that they can continue to, to learn and grow together. And we have the coaches, which are organizations that are really good at supporting people and developing uh, people, not through fault finding or nitpicking, but by you know raising people up and and helping them step out of their comfort zone. And then we have the trust builders, and those are organizations that are really good at building teams that are based on trust and um, and mutual respect. And so those are the you know sort of the, the rough patterns that you would see in an organization that is unfair. Yeah, I, I'll make it really even simpler. Um, an unfair organization versus a fair organization. The unfair organization lives in the end and the, uh, the fair organization lives in the either or. Either this or that mm-hmm. versus the end, right? So, so people say process or something else. We say it's adaptive and process. Some say it's efficiency or effectiveness. We say it's efficiency and effectiveness. Uh, and, and the other thing would be that the unfair organizations have a solutions orientation rather than a problem orientation. And then, then they also, the last piece we would say is that the unfair organization lives human to human rather than role to role. Uh, when, when there's fear, people are living hierarchically in role to role and they are either suppressing themselves based on their role or aggrandizing themselves based on role rather than understanding that we are all special as human beings. We play a role, but we are not our role. That's an important distinction that we play a role and we are, but we are not our role. So it's not an identity. It is the function that I'm serving in this moment in this capacity. And I love what you're talking about, the power of the and. Uh, one, one of the ways we say that around here is land in the and. Right, that as much as we can do that and bring those things together and avoid that polarity of either or, you know, the the mind is so amazing in that it will find what it's looking for. So if I'm looking for an and outcome or an and way of approaching a situation, I am so much more likely to find it than if I'm looking for the problem or I'm looking at one or the other. Yeah, David, can I mm-hmm. just simplify this idea of unfair just in a very simple thought, which I actually learned from my spiritual teacher, which is interesting. He he once told me, Gaurav, it's easy to be a saint when you live in a cave. It's easy to be a saint when you live in a cave. The real work of life is to operate like a saint, which is leader, replace saint with leader, to operate like a leader in relationship to others. 
that's what unfair is about. It's about being able to see those opportunities of friction as growth opportunities rather than opportunities to collapse. And I think that's at the core of the, of the book. One of the elements that you just said that I want to capitalize on uh, that you said just a moment ago was about hierarchical thinking and the power of roles and, and so on, because I want to make clear this unfair is not about eliminating a hierarchy or eliminating organizational roles uh, roles or structure or anything like that. One of the things that you, you talk about is that uh, the role of hierarchy is different in a fear-based versus an unfair organization. So unpack that for us a little bit. How does the organization, the difference of roles work in a healthy unfair organization as opposed to maybe what we might've been used to in the past? Yeah, the big idea is really in a fear-based organization, the organization is serving the hierarchy. Right there, the their people are there, and they're sort of managing the egos of people in the hierarchy. And an unfair organization just tips that completely uh, around and says, you know, the hierarchy is there to remove barriers, to help streamline things, and to enable and empower other people and give them the information and you know guidance that they need in order to to perform at their best. So it's just it's you know the role of the hierarchy is different whether it's a fear or on fear-based organization. Gaurav, you were going to add something? Yeah, so I mean, just just simply, again, it's when hierarchies are used in unfair organizations, they create efficiency and effectiveness because they are focused on outcomes rather, rather than the people in the hierarchy. When in, in fear-based organizations, they actually negatively impact efficiency and effectiveness because it's about as Mark said, managing people's egos. So it becomes about the only, in a higher classic hierarchy, the only true customer is your boss, which is a very dysfunctional way of looking at things. Because you're not ultimately serving what should be your team's exactly. customer, end customer, internal customer, what have you. Yeah, I would see this in the Navy, by the way, where you know if there was a unit that was very fear-based and hierarchical, you know, the, the boss would say something and you can just feel the tent, you know, everyone was like really geared up and trying to serve the boss or, or the commander. Whereas, you know, organizations or units that weren't fear-based, you know, the, the commander would, you know, provide some structure and maybe a framework, but really trusted other people to carry that out. And so, it, you know, the, the level of stress and worry wasn't in managing, you know, the ego of the, the bosses it was, you really felt like you were supported and, and allowed to you know, achieve the mission together. You really felt like you were part of a team. So powerful. You know, when you were talking about the, one of the phrases that you just said that, that jumped out at me a moment ago, Mark, was that in a fear-based organization, the, the organization is there to serve the hierarchy as opposed to the hierarchy and the organization being there to serve the, the, the people, the customer, the, all the goals that we're about. And that strikes me that that's got to apply to almost kind of every aspect of organizational life, like the processes that we use, the systems that we use, that ultimately they should be there to serve the objectives, to serve the people, to serve the outcomes we're after. And I know from reading the book, you, you are fans of continuous learning and systems thinking. Can you talk to us a little bit about how we approach that from an unfair perspective? Are they really 
they go together. There's a cycle that you get out in the virtuous cycle that, that comes with unfear and systems thinking and continuous learning is a part of that. But I wonder if you could unpack that for us a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think let's go back to just that inside out idea. I think you have to start with individuals and their own relationship to fear and what's what's going on for them. You know, let's say there's a, a leader who's really creating a lot of fear in the organization that can create silos. That leader needs to understand how they're showing up and how they're impacting other people. So that that needs to happen. And then that translates into, you know, the the teams and how people are communicating and whether or not they're they're having effective, difficult conversations, whether or not they're they're building trust effectively, because in order to break down silos and to, you know, get this organizational system to work together, that's a critical piece. And then from there, you can create, you know, better processes and in, in systems that actually achieve, um, you know, more holistic and, and greater outcomes. You know, a lot of what we find in, in organizational systems that are fear-based is you have groups that are really narrowly focused on their own outcomes at the expense of other, other people's outcomes. And so when you can unfear individuals and teams, now people are in a headspace to say, okay, like I, I really am open to this larger goal. I can see my role in this. And rather than optimizing my own little piece, I'm really open to optimizing this whole um, and then you know, uh, system. And that's, and just that's wanna, what we help people see. Just wanna emphasize that because, I mean, at the end of the day, it's because I don't have to cover my own butt. Right. I mean, if we get really practical, if I'm not living in fear and I don't have to worry about being got, it's like, oh, okay, wait a minute. I can work towards the, the greater good here. Absolutely. Yeah, the, the only other thing, David, I would say is that continuous learning, and this is this might freak people out, continuous learning can only happen when you allow for uncertainty to, to actually be present. And a lot of things that destroy processes, that destroy continuous learning, try and over control and over predict things. So for continuous learning to happen, it's not, the processes are not to, to create over prediction. The processes are there for you to actually engage in uncertainty in a way that allows you to come up with more effective solutions. And that's why those system loops are so important because the system loops are creating structures to to address uncertainty and keep staying in uncertainty as a way of growth versus eliminate uncertainty and make things fixed. That principle, it's something that we're hearing so much in leadership these days, that principle of becoming comfortable with discomfort, being comfortable with ambiguity, being comfortable with uncertainty, doesn't mean we don't know where we're going and what direction we're heading and the outcomes we're trying to achieve, but that there is an element of you know, innovation doesn't happen without risk. There's got to be a chance it's not going to work if we're going to learn something. Absolutely. So, okay, we're talking with Gaurav Bhatnagar and Mark Manukas about their book. It's Unfear, Transform Your Organization to Create Breakthrough Performance and Employee Well-Being. Let's just take a quick moment and find out, and we'll put all this in the show notes. Where can we connect with you, your organization, find the book, and so on? Now, I've got a couple more questions I'm just dying to ask you. Yeah, you can find us at cocreationpartners.com. That's cocreation partners with no dashes. Um, and you know, our contact information is there on the website and we're more than happy to uh, have people reach out and, and join this conversation on Unfear. Um, they can learn more about, about the book at unfearbook.com and they can go to amazon and anybooks.com as well to order the book. 
And uh, while we're talking about the book and Mark, you had mentioned earlier, the different archetypes, organizational archetypes, and you've got a great approach in the book and that you have available for people that want to dive in there and find out about their organization and what's going on and, and do that work. It's, it's very powerful. So as we we're getting close to the end of it, we got a, a little bit more time left, but one of the questions I want to ask you, uh, gets a little personal. I want you to go back and talk to me when I was about 31. And specifically, I was a middle level, senior, senior level, senior level, middle manager, easy for me to say, right? And it turns out that I had a manager who was reported to me, a direct report, who had a team, several teams, and I was unaware at first, but I found out that this person was leading through fear. That was not at all what I taught. It was not at all what I encouraged, but for his own reasons and all those issues, he was leading through fear. I mean, in, in all the worst ways. And when it came to light, I was appalled. But my question for you is if you could go back and, and coach me or anyone else listening to the show right now who has a person who is leading through fear, how might we as a coaching leader or a leader who cares about their success help them get to a place of unfear? Sure. So, yeah. so the way, the way, so the instinctive reaction would be to fire the person because you want to change the organization, but actually that's, at least for Mark and I, that's not the starting point of the conversation, right? The starting point of the conversation is to actually engage the person to understand, to help them see what are the belief systems that are making them behave from a place of fear. And what are those stories that they have in their head? Because it's the stories that make people behave in certain ways. And the dialogue is about how do you shift those stories and help them see how the new story could, could actually lead to better outcomes. And then provide the support system and the structures for the person to go and practice that new belief and not expect that it'll happen overnight. Right. So, and I can tell you that because I was that manager, David, that you had. Right. And I had people who supported me through it over a period of a year where I had to unlearn being a micromanager and a control freak because of my storyline that success meant pushing people down. And my ideas always coming to the fore. And it was basically based in my story about how I grew up in India and what I believed about what it meant to be successful. So my invitation would be, don't just talk about, hey, this is your behavior, go to a new behavior. Actually try and understand the story behind the behavior, which is the link between your fear and your outcome of the behavior outcome. And that's where the real work needs to happen. And it takes a little longer, but that is what creates transformations and creates really active engagement systems where performance and well-being can work together. Yeah, and just to build on that, I, I think you know part of what Gaurav's saying is you have to bring a level of compassion to the conversation with this manager. You can't make people <laughs> shift out of a fear-based pattern with more fear. You actually have to meet them where they are and you know create a degree of safety, you know, through compassion and just you know a, a deeper conversation with that that manager. And the other thing is, you know, to create safety as a leader, you also have to role model the level of openness that you're expecting of them. 
and the level of self-reflection you're expecting of other people. So it's very easy to find fault with other people on your team. It's a lot harder to you know, question uh, yourself as a leader and say, how am I actually contributing to these patterns? And so I think you need to do all the above. Beautiful. And the thing that strikes me about as both of you answered that is that you are modeling the message, you're modeling the approach uh, in that, in taking that approach to that individual and helping them have a chance to, to learn, to unlearn, looking at the stories. It's such a great example yeah. of the kind of human-centered leadership we're talking about. And David, interestingly enough, Mark and I, when we were about starting to write the book, we met a guy in South Africa when we were there on retreat. And he said something, which is the last line in the book. And what he told us was, fear is love that has forgotten itself. Oh. Fear is love that has forgotten itself. So you can't unfear people unless you help them reconnect with that love. I don't think there's anything more human-centered than that. Well, hey, spoiler alert, you just got the last line of the book, but it's worth <laughs> the journey to get there. All right. So as we're wrapping up, I want to ask each of you, if you could, if you have 30 seconds each sort of approach here, what is the most important step a leader can take to get started on this journey? Uh, are they listening to you go, yeah, gosh, I do want to transform. I, I do want that culture. That approach makes all the sense in the world. How do I get started? What should I do first? Yeah, I think the, the first step always is awareness. And I think becoming more aware without blame and judgment of yourself, just more aware of, you know, how are you showing up as a leader? You know, how might you be, um, you know, expressing certain fear-based patterns, you know, those fear archetypes. I think that's always, um, you know, perhaps the, the most difficult, yet also the, the most accessible first step that people can take. And I will go metaphor, metaphor rather than specifics. Um, so Michelangelo said, I saw an angel in the stone and I said to carve it free. I would invite people to ask themselves, what is their angel? Because when you can see the angel in yourself, you see angels in other people. And the other metaphor I will then give is angels fly because they take themselves lightly. So please don't take yourselves so hard and so seriously that you forget to fly. Wow. I can't do better than that. Oh, thank you, Mark. Thank you, Gaurav. These are beautiful, beautiful statements. If we can take these to heart, to see the angel in ourselves, to, to do the self-reflection, to own our own process and journey there and creating an unfear organization. Again, unfear, transform your organization to create breakthrough performance and employee well-being. This journey and relationship with fear is such a critical part of becoming a truly human-centered leader. I uh, can't emphasize enough how important this is. And I thank you so much for taking your time to help us understand this and then laying out the roadmap that you've laid out in Unfear for all of us to make that transformation ourselves, our teams, and ultimately our organizations too. Gaurav, Mark, thank you so much. Thank Thanks, you. David. It's been a pleasure. Until next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>